This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com. Or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part four of a seven-part series on will contest-focused fiduciary litigation. This series is hosted by attorneys Christopher Hodge and Job Jackson. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Welcome back to Langley and Benack's seven-part series on fiduciary litigation focused on will contests and the probate process. Uh, my name is Chris Hodge. And I'm Joe Jackson. And uh, we work in our San Antonio office. And um, in this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about our uh, about will contests and some of the uh, allegations that can be made in in a will contest petition uh, lawsuit to try and set aside a uh, a last will and testament of somebody who's passed away. In our previous episodes, uh, just to recap a little bit, we talked. Uh, about uh, what is a valid will in Texas and some of the issues that come up uh, in those instances and, and, and then the probate process in general. And then in the, the episode previous to this one, we talked about sort of will contest considerations, um, whether or not you, uh, you should be considering a will contest. So uh, to start out this episode, Job, can you, can you talk a little bit about um, I guess what is the the most popular uh, claim to set aside a will in lack of testamentary capacity? So the the most popular claim um, and really goes to the fundamentals of having a valid will to begin with is uh, claiming that the testator, you know, the decedent, you know, testator and decedent will kind of use interchangeably. That's the person who's passed away and had prepared an executed will is whether or not that person had testamentary capacity uh, when they execute the will. Um, that's the most common ground for a will contest. And kind of at the outset, I'll just lay out a roadmap. We'll be covering lack of testamentary capacity, undue influence, fraud, uh, mistake in executing the will and the lack of formalities, and also insane delusion. But uh, out of all of those, the most common uh, ground for a will contest is alleging that at the time the testator executed the will, they lacked uh, testamentary capacity to do so. Okay, and so uh, the, our Texas case law um, has defined what Texas, what lack of, te or, or what testamentary capacity is. And that is that the testator has to understand the business in which he's engaged. 
So he has to understand that he is making a will and has to understand that the will controls the disposition of his or her assets when he passes away. He has to understand the effect and the act of making the will. Like I said, that what what the will does, where how how it um, how it controls the disposition of his assets when he passes away. He has to he or she has to understand the general nature and extent of their property, and so they have to understand in general what they own, not down to the penny or not down to the legal description of the land, but they have to understand in general what they own so that they could have in their will decided, I want this that I own to go to this beneficiary. Fourth, they have to know who their family is. They have to know the their next of kin and the natural objects of their bounty, which is sort of the archaic way of saying they have to know who their family is. And finally, which is um, so often problematic in a lot of the cases that we deal with, they have to have sufficient memory to collect in their mind the elements of the business to be transacted and to hold them long enough together to perceive their relation to one another. So that's a long way of saying that they have to have the ability to remember all of this stuff, all of the previous elements at the same time and be able to make a reasonable judgment about those things at the time they're executing the will. So, um, you know, so often this, this, this comes up and, and a lot of times the way, um, you know, the way a jury is going to get asked this question is the question uh, typically has these elements in it and, the, and, and the, the jury gets to decide, did the testator at the time they executed the will, were they able to meet all of these requirements? And if a jury finds that they weren't, then that last will and testament is set aside based on the lack of testamentary capacity. And Chris, you know, we're mentioning testamentary capacity. We went through all those elements that, you know, every single one of them has to be there uh, for the person to have had testamentary capacity. Is there a presumption when you offer a will for probate that they had testamentary capacity? I mean, you have a will that's signed by them, right? Uh, Job, no, there's not a presumption of testamentary capacity. In, in one of our previous episodes, we, we talked about a proof of death. And a proof of death in 99% in of probate cases is a document that gets signed or witness testimony that gets heard at the application to probate a will. And in the context of uh, that document or that testimony, um, they flush out whether or not the um, whether or not the testator had testamentary capacity um, to to be able to have executed um, this will, and so that's the proof that had to get put on. That's the evidence that had to get established in order to overcome um, that lack of a presumption of testamentary capacity. In in Chris, so there's no presumption, but. You know, what about if this will has two witnesses that saw the testator sign it and they're even willing to testify that, look, I was there at the time and I thought the testator was of sound mind. Is that conclusive? No. Um, you know, this sort of gets into a discussion of what all of the what is evidence of lack of testamentary capacity or just or establishing testamentary capacity. And a jury is able to hear from. Um, fact, 
fact witnesses, so people who knew the decedent or the witnesses to the will, the people that were in in the room when the uh, testator signed the will, or and and or expert testimony about the mental faculties and mental capacity of that person that that executed the will. So, Chris, you, you mentioned expert witnesses. Are you, are you talking about a, a doctor or maybe a forensic psychiatrist? Um, sure, that's that certainly uh, that certainly comes up in a lot of our cases. Um, you know, typically in in will contests, and given the complexity of some of these cases, um, you know, we we have to hire a um, an expert, a forensic psychiatrist to opine on the, the testamentary capacity uh, or susceptibility to undue influence of the, the decedent. And the reason for that is typically the, the testator or the decedent over the course of the, whatever the relevant time frame is of your will contests. And so by that, I mean, from the, you know, the day the last will and testament is signed to, um, between when a previous will is signed. So that's, or, a pre, or whenever, uh, whatever wills have been offered for probate, um, that's sort of your relevant time frame. But typically these individuals have seen a number of doctors or other medical professionals. And as you know, when you go see a doctor, medical records are created. And so it's not um, all, all the time feasible to have all of these doctors come in and testify at trial because doctors are very busy and um, and so it's hard to get them to come testify at trial and so the way that you accomplish that is by getting their medical records and then having an expert forensic psychiatrist um, review the medical records and come up with an opinion about whether or not the the testator uh, had testamentary capacity or not. And Chris, you mentioned getting these medical records. Um, probably in most cases, you know, the your loved one, the decedent's medical records are not just going to be sitting at their house. They're going to be in a doctor's office, and you can go obtain those with a subpoena um, to re- request the documents. And the doctors have to provide those documents, or else being uh, risk being held in contempt of court by the judge. So you can get those documents and actually uh, because that kind of information is so relevant in will contests, uh, the Texas legislature actually made a provision in the estates code uh, that allows for the discovery of these type of records um, in the event of a will contest where someone's capacity is at issue. and. Uh, one thing that is important to know in a will contest when capacity is at issue or, uh, frankly, undue influence in the other elements is discovery and the amount of information that you can obtain about the testator's life is very broad, uh, much broader than in your typical business or personal entry litigation. Uh, and the legislature recognized that and put provisions in the estates code to allow you to obtain uh truly a substantial amount of information about uh, the decedent's life prior to death. And so when we talk about testamentary capacity, and when I read through the elements of testamentary capacity, it, it sort of hinges on that this, all of this has to be met at the time the will is executed. 
But in reality, we have to know a lot more than that to be able to decide whether or not that person had testimony capacity when they walked into that attorney's office or when that will was signed. So in order to do that, we, we essentially have to, for that relevant time period I, I was talking about, put their life back together. And to do that, um, basically everything that they did um, comes into play. And by that, I mean, um, how did they transact business? How did they uh, conduct themselves on a daily basis? Were they, are they, were they able to drive? Were they able to continue to write checks? Were they, were they able to um, have a conversation with, how, how was their memory? Were they on, um, what, what types of medications were they on? And so for that relevant time period between wills that have been offered for probate, all of these documents, whether it be bank records, tax returns, um, medication list from a pharmacy, um, doctor's reports um, or other medical records, all of this is relevant to whether or not this person had the requisite testamentary capacity when they signed that will. And so my point in saying all of this is that typically speaking, these will contests cast such a broad net over um, lots of different types of documents. And so, um, you know, it, it's easy to send subpoenas um, and, and to try to get these documents once you, you get into a case. And a lot of times you'll find um, golden nuggets from the documents that you, you get back to try and help you in your case. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll mention now you're probably thinking a lot of documents, subpoenas, that all sounds like it, it has a cost associated with it. And in a later episode, we are going to be discussing uh, the costs associated with the will co contest and this type of estate litigation. Um, and in addition to obtaining records through subpoenas, uh, you can take the depositions and obtain testimony from a number of fact witnesses because that broad discovery, um, any in that relevant time period, any interaction uh, the decedent had with another person uh, in their life is going to be relevant as to how uh, their mental faculties were on the day that they executed the will. So, for instance, uh, if they interacted, if the decedent interacted with neighbors regularly, you're going to want to talk to the neighbors. Um, were those normal interactions or uh, in the case of at least one of our cases, did uh, the decedent answer the door naked uh, and act strangely? Those are, are going to be things that you're going to want to discover because they all paint the picture of the person's life and how uh, and whether they had testimony capacity on the day they execute the will. And so some of the other factors that, that we consider when we get into these cases are the, the physical condition of the decedent and were there any corresponding mental repercussions? For instance, um, if somebody's had a heart attack or if somebody's had the loss of oxygen to their brain, that can have, a, have an effect on their mental capacity, their, their ability to reason, their executive function. Executive function is a big term in will contests. Um, you know, in general, their age, how old are they? If, it, if somebody is uh, much older in their 90s and they sign, sign their will in the hospital or something like that, um, someplace out of the ordinary, it, there's always questions that that can be asked um, and because typically there's there's something possibly that went wrong How, do they have any any mental problems are they on dementia medication um, have they do they have any psychotic episodes what doctors are they seeing for all of those has has that um, have those issues been treated or not been treated 
Um, do they have any substance abuse problems? Do they have any alcohol or other substance abuse problems that, um, that you know, they, they abuse alcohol daily? And so if they signed something in the afternoon, maybe that wasn't the best time uh, for, for them to be signing it. And as, as most people know, um, a chronic substance abuse has, has a very detrimental effect on somebody's mental capacity. Um, and then um, education and, and or lack thereof. Do they have the ability to understand the nature of what they're doing? Um, do, what, do they speak a different language than the will was in? Um, and then, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, was the disposition an unnatural disposition? Did it not go to the kids um, and when, it, when it should have, instead it went um, to, to a caregiver. Um, another couple considerations are, um, you know, the witnesses, you know, making sure it's, it's important in these cases to take the depositions of the will witnesses and, and make sure they were in the presence of the testator when they signed the will and when the testator signed the will. Um, are there any erroneous facts or statements in the will, which if the testator had been in his right mind, his or her right mind, that they would have, um, they would have caught. And so these are just little things that can cue you to, hey, I think we, we have a problem here. And, and I'll, I'll mention uh, erroneous statement of facts. Uh, what we'll typically see in that is descriptions of property uh, that the decedent never actually owned uh, or is in a wrong state. For instance, they uh, say, I want to leave my house located in X city in Texas, but that city doesn't exist and may be in uh, Wisconsin, but not in Texas. Uh, that can be evidence that at the time they uh, executed the will, they didn't know the nature of their property because they're, they're talking about property in places that doesn't exist. So Chris, the, the next most common ground um, for filing a will contest is, is undue influence. And when we think of undue influence, what, what does that actually mean in Texas law? So undue influence is, is actually a really broad term. And um, there's lots of case law that talks about all of the subsets of other claims that fall within um, the, the purview of undue influence. Some of those are fraud, deceit, duress, all of those come into play uh, as sort of a subset of undue influence. But to answer your question, um, undue influence is uh, the existence and exercise of an influence upon the testator that operated to subvert or overpower the testator's mind at the time the will was executed and such that the execution of the will would not have occurred but for the undue influence. So that's the typical definition. And so I think we're going to talk about a lot of a lot of examples here in, in a little while. But um, Texas courts have been very clear that, you know, while the while the definition says at the time that the will was executed, there's a lot more that goes into this than just right at that time. And so it's not as if if you're going to want to file a, a claim of undue influence, um, in a will contest that you have to have a scenario where somebody's holding a gun to the testator's head and making them sign sign a will. Um, Texas case law has been very developed that, that like lack of testamentary capacity, 
um, there is there are a lot more uh, different aspects of that person's life that come into play with regard to the the undue influence. Mm -hmm. and, and it's important to note too that you know one of the elements of undue influence is the existence and exercise of an influence on the testator, but that in itself is not enough. So the the fact that a child or a potential beneficiary had maybe discussed with mom or the loved one that hey you know. Uh, I do think I should inherit more for X, Y, Z reason. Uh, that's not enough. It has to be uh, that kind of request that goes to the level that it really uh, overpowers the testator's mind to where they wouldn't have made the change uh, in their estate plan, but for that, that influence to change the estate plan. And, and like we talked a little bit about, there's all different kinds of undue influence, whether or not it's it's fraud, it's a misrepresentation to the testator, if they're your father, or if they're um, and and you tell them that you're going to do this. And if you leave, if they leave all of their property to you, but you have never actually intended to do that. Or if through um, some case law talks about silence. If you, you don't speak up about something that, that they would want to know um, that would, would have changed their mind with regard to their will, that, that can be undue influence. But all of these cases are, are um, very, very fact-specific. And, um, you know, I, I would say more often than not in, in these cases where we allege undue influence, there's typically some sort of relationship poisoning going on. And by that, I mean that um, whoever it is that's trying to subvert or overpower the mind of the testator is also trying to um, poison the relationship of the testator with whoever his other relatives are, those natural objects of his bounty or his next of kin, um, to, to get whatever inheritance they, um, that, that they would have otherwise been entitled to under another will. And, and Chris, when we look at kind of the broad range and you know, it's clear that undue influence is going to be a really case by case basis on, on the facts there. And as you mentioned, we're looking uh, a lot of times there's relationship poisoning going on. Uh, what kind of evidence can we obtain to kind of prove that to either the judge or the jury? Yeah, and a lot of, you know, actually, to your point, you know, some of the Texas courts have saying that it it's basically impossible to lay down a hard or fast rule of the definition of undue influence that would embrace all of the different forms of it. And so, so some of those would be a, a court, just a course of dealing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and a lot of times when we, when we get into these cases, um, somebody who's susceptible to undue influence typically always maybe has some mental problems as well or some issues with some memory issues. To, that make them um, increasingly more likely uh, to be taken advantage of. And so, um, you know, whether or not it's, maybe it's somebody that holds a power of attorney over them that, um, that has them exercise, execute a new will that leaves them, uh, that leaves that, the agent, in fact, under the power of attorney, everything or more than, more than what was in the previous will. So, and Joe, so what does this Texas law talk about a, if, if you're an agent and a will is executed in your favor, what, what, is, what have the court said about that? Uh, well, Texas law has recognized that when someone has a power of attorney, uh, they really do have a significant amount of power over 
the, the principal's life and, and assets and, and decision making. And because of that really uh, important and special relationship, uh, Texas law presumes undue influence if there is an estate plan that uh, is changed to benefit the power of attorney when that power of attorney is active. Yeah, and what I think what we discussed in our previous episode was, um, you know, most of this this evidence that um, about undue influence is circumstantial evidence. Very rarely you're going to have um, somebody, like I said, holding a gun to the testator's head, and so it's direct evidence of undue influence. A lot of it is circumstantial, and you just have to sort of surmise that over the course of a long time or a course of dealing that evidence became so influential that it subverted the testator's, uh, the testator's mind. You know, one of the examples that comes up a lot in our practice is uh, caregivers. And, um, and, and we've talked about this previously, but um, that, that if a caregiver is a, a son or a daughter, and, um, and maybe they have siblings that live elsewhere, but, and they're caring for mom and dad, and at some point, yeah, it's a lot of work to care for mom and dad, but at some point they, they feel like they need to um, be benefited for doing that. And so they have mom or dad execute a new will that leaves them or maybe cuts their siblings out or maybe just gives them more. But um, that's an example of undue influence. And, and it, it would be up to the jury to decide what does that undue influence rise to the level to, um, to require the will to be set aside. And, and a lot of the evidence that we've been discussing uh, to establish undue influence is gonna sound similar to testamentary capacity, uh, the, the same kind of evidence that we looked there, especially the medical evidence. And that's because someone who uh, is in a diminished uh, mental or physical state um, is usually gonna be much more susceptible to undue influence just because they don't have the ability to resist the undue influence. So uh, the same kind of medical evidence that we discussed with regard to a challenge based on testamentary capacity is also gonna be relevant in a challenge based on undue influence because you can certainly have the situation where uh, after reviewing the medical evidence, it's determined that, you know what, they, they did have testamentary capacity, however, uh, you know, they just crossed the finish line barely and they were in such a diminished state that they were still susceptible to undue influence, even though they had capacity. So I think that wraps up uh, undue influence. And so, Jeb, let's talk a little bit about fraud and, and mistake, which are also causes of action that, that operate to essentially set aside or invalidate somebody's last will and testament. Can you talk a little bit about fraud um, as an allegation in a will contest? Yeah, so so fraud in, in the inducement is an independent ground for a will contest. Some courts will consider fraud to be almost a subset of undue influence, frankly, because uh, the evidence is going to be so similar for each claim. Uh, but fraud is going to be a, a false representation uh, that causes someone to act in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise acted. So in the context of a will, that would be a lie uh, used to uh, cause someone to execute a will that they would not have otherwise done. And, and that lie can also just be silence. So for instance, if the testator has a false belief that, for instance, a potential beneficiary has 
uh, serious substance abuse issues and there's concerns that, you know, if I left the money, they're just going to go out and buy more drugs. If the person in proximity to them uh, knew that that wasn't the truth and failed to speak up, uh, you could allege that that was a, a fraud in the inducement. And, and likewise, if there's affirmative statement saying, you know, so-and-so has these problems or has done this act, you should cut them out of the will, but that statement's not true. Uh, if that's the statement that uh, influenced the testator to change their will, that would be grounds to set aside the will based on fraud. And one of the cases that we've had recently where, where we alleged fraud was when the, the drafting attorney of the will um, advised the testator that if he drafted, if he wrote it this certain way, it would be valid. And in reality, under Texas law, it was not going to be valid. And so we alleged in that case that it was fraud on the part of the estate planning attorney to have advised him of that. And as a, you know, and then, and then he executed the will based on that advice. And, um, and so we, we alleged that the will was invalid based on fraud. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the next areas is mistake or lack of formalities. And so would you talk a little bit about that? So uh, in this case could be, um, for instance, on the lack of for formalities, you know, in prior episodes, we've discussed what constitutes a valid will and the probate process and the fact that you have to offer the will for probate and have a, a court admit the will to probate. Um, it's possible that a will can be admitted to probate even after that process that in fact didn't meet those requirements. And an example of this is uh, the witness requirement for a will. Um, you may have had people uh, testify during the uh, application to probate the will that, you know, I actually witnessed this person signing the will, here's my signature on the will itself. But it turns out later you can establish that they didn't, in fact, witness the execution of the will. And if you've established that, uh, you can say that that's a, a lack of formalities for a valid will because that witness did not, in fact, witness the will. So that that's an example of the lack of formalities. Um, it's rare that you have a, a lack of proper signature, but it can happen. Um, and then with regard to mistake, which is another another claim in a will contest is 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 basically that that the testator was mistaken about the contents of the will or what it was supposed to do and so if um, if the testator believed the will to be um, giving you know property uh, elsewhere where where it didn't really occur in the will um, that would be a mistake if, if the testator represented to you um, that hey, I did, redid my will today and I left you a third of my estate, but that's not actually what the will said. You might have a claim um, for, for a mistake. Also, there, there may be um, uh, along those same lines with regard to the to mistake. It's, it's presumed that um, in Texas, it's presumed that when you, you sign a document that you know the contents of it. And the same is true for a will. And so... If, if it's apparent from um, the face of the will that maybe the testator didn't know the contents of it, and so the question would be, how would that be? And so what if there, there are initial places to initial on the will, but that didn't happen? So maybe the testator didn't actually read the will before they signed it. 
Um, so, you know, the, those are different claims as well that, that can be made uh, that the testator didn't know the contents of it and therefore he didn't, he, he couldn't have had the requisite testamentary capacity because he didn't understand the contents of the document um, that he was signing. Um, and one of the last um, allegations that can be made to set aside a will is insane delusion. It's, it's a lot less common than these, these other claims that we've been discussing before this. Um, but nevertheless, it, it's out there and there's not many cases on it. But Joe, would you just talk a little bit about what, what is an insane delusion? Sure. Uh, in Texas, cases have defined insane delusion with, with two elements. The first is the belief of supposed facts that do not exist. And two, which no rational person would believe. So it's not enough that someone believes in, in something that doesn't exist. It has to be something that no one would ever believe. And in fact, the, the proof that no rational person would believe that fact uh, usually requires evidence of uh, a, a, you know, a brain defect or a functional disorder of the mind. It's usually tied to a medical issue as to why no other rational person would believe this. So if someone has this insane delusion and that's what caused them to change their will, um, then that could be a basis for uh, uh, contesting and setting aside that will that has either been offered for probate or admitted to probate. Well, that concludes um, our discussion of the different allegations that can be made uh, in a will contest to set, set aside a will. Um, and so in our, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about various topics um, within the context of a will contest um, that, that deal with, with wills, and including no contest clauses and acceptance of benefits. And so we hope you join us uh, for our next episode. Uh, this is Chris Hodge. And this is Jeb Jackson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.